encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 21, and also, if you would, two books to the left of Matthew is Zechariah. If you could flip back to Zechariah and, and Mark chapter 9, verse 9, we'll look back at that verse during our study of Matthew 21. from the Old Testament prophet that Matthew's quotes in this text. We'll go back and look at that verse. So just to uh, remind you before we go to the Lord in prayer, just to uh, uh, be praying for our brother uh, Tim Gibson. His wife Nancy has been in hospice for some time now, and uh, as far as I know, she's, she's still with us this morning, but been there sev- for several, several days, so let's just continue to remember Nancy this morning and Tim and the family uh, during this time for them. Let's pray together and ask uh, the Lord to help us as we look to this text together today. Father, we love you and praise you and We thank you, Father, for being able to declare your goodness, your might, your grace in the songs that we have sung together, uniting our our fellowship in, in mind and heart and faith through song. And we thank you for being able to lift up our voices today and to bring you glory, Father, declaring true things about you. And we thank you, Father, for your word that you have given, that you have revealed, that you have preserved throughout generations, Father, that we might have in our hands the the true, accurate word of God that is unlike any other book, because this book is given by you, comes from you, is breathed out by you, and therefore the, what is contained within it is eternally true and absolute. And as Paul says, leads us to the knowledge of salvation. There's no greater treasure, no greater possession in terms of earthly possessions than our Bibles. And and we thank you that we have a a room full of them. We even have enough to give away. We we have them all all in the pews, all in our homes. We have them everywhere. Sometimes we don't realize what we have sitting right in our laps. And what's a, what a precious thing we get to do today, open up that word of life and, and see Christ the Lord and, and hear him speak and watch him move and see things unfold that are actually leading to our salvation, how he's going to accomplish our salvation. And so these are really precious moments, precious times as we enter into the last phase of Matthew's gospel. And we just ask God that you'd open our hearts May we love Christ more than ever. May we love truth more than ever. Give us a courageous faith. Give us a deep faith. Deepen our affections for our Lord. 
Begin that work in me, Father. I'm so far from where I need to be. So help me, Father, to behold Christ and treasure Christ and long for Christ in my own life. And do a great work in your church for your glory. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So let me explain the title, A Not-So-Triumphant Triumphal Entry. The triumphant entry is kind of the summary that we have attached to this passage. It's what we call this passage, but it's not really how the passage itself speaks about this event. In my Bible, maybe yours as well, if, you, if I look right up above uh, the, the, the numbers 21 of chapter 21, I have in bold italics the triumphal entry. Those words, the triumphal entry, are not scripture. Those are not part of God's inspired scripture. Those are headings that are provided by our translators. And so they kind of give the reader kind of a gist of what's happening in the passage that you're getting ready to read. So they are not meant, those bold italics headings that you see all through your Bible, they're not meant for interpretational use. They're just meant to kind of give the reader an understanding of what's going on in terms of events or summary. So just that's just a note for as we read and study our Bibles and and how to how to how to view those headings. But we know why this is called the triumphal entry. We know why that that heading is there. It's due to the words and the actions of the crowds. As Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, they laid down their coats, they cut off the the palm branches and laid them on the road. And and all of this was a a symbol of honor and a symbol of, of respect, signifying respect. And they shout over and over in a very uh, celebratory fashion, declarations about Jesus that are that are absolutely true. And so when when you kind of just brush brush through the text reading, it all does seem and, and, and look and feel and sound like, like something very triumphant. But what's interesting, though, is that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, he doesn't really place much emphasis on the crowd's reaction to Jesus. He kind of just simply tells us this is what happened when Jesus came into Jerusalem. What Matthew does, however... He does place great emphasis on how Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. And in essence, he brings the narrative, he brings the story to a screeching halt and takes us to the Old Testament and then continues the narrative. So his emphasis actually is on how Jesus arrives in Jerusalem And that, exactly where you would not expect to find the triumph, is where the triumph is found. That's what makes this entry triumphal. So let's talk about, there's there's really two main things that are presented in these 11 verses, the, the cult and the crowds. So let's talk about first the prophecy of a cult. The prophecy of a cult. And, and first notice with me that Jesus is totally aware of his surroundings, even from a distance away. 
He, he tells his disciples, he says, now, the village in front of you, go, go into that village. And then he begins to explain everything. Not only, not only his surroundings from a distance, but how everything will unfold, even right down to the smallest of details. He knows where to find the colt. He knows the conversation that's going to take place when the disciples approach the colt. He knows exactly what the disciples need to say when they're questioned about getting the colt. He knows how the owner's going to respond when the disciples reply to him. Now, these, the, the rest of this story is found in the other Gospels, the conversation. And he knows this all. Why? Because he is God and this is his plan. He is God and this is his plan. In fact, it's been his plan for thousands of years. Indeed, that's why Matthew takes us back to the Old Testament. And so Jesus is totally aware of everything, the entire geographical landscape from a distance, and also how everything to the smallest of detail is going to unfold when the disciples do what he's instructing them to do. Now think about that for a minute. It's one thing to be aware of, maybe, you know, maybe I've been to that village several times and I'm aware that nine times out of ten there's a colt tied up right here. And maybe I can take a fairly good educated guess and say, now when you go in there, there's going to be a colt there. But how then do you say, now say this to the owner and the owner's going to say this to you and then bring that colt to me? Think about that. Think about these narratives that we read about Jesus. Only God can do that. Only God can say, this is exactly what's going to happen. This is exactly what's going to be said. And just bring the cult to me. We read last week, only God can open blind eyes. And only God can orchestrate events and people and conversations to fulfill his sovereign plan. The point is, you have to be God to do the things that Jesus does. And that has always been Matthew's point. From the very opening up of Matthew's gospel, he has been stre- he's been stressing over and over again, listen to what Jesus is saying, look at what Jesus is doing. Only God can do these things. Therefore, Jesus is God. That's why Matthew has written a gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew keeps pointing us back to Old Testament prophecy. This is now the tenth time that Matthew has written, now this took place to fulfill what was spoken. Matthew is constantly reminding us over and over again, you cannot do these things. No one can do these things with the certainty and the precision down to the detail that that these things are being done by Christ unless you are God in the flesh. And so first we see that Jesus' actions in this narrative declare that he is God But second, we see that in fulfilling yet another prophecy, the scriptures themselves are declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's Matthew's point as well, isn't it? Matthew is saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, listen to what he says, watch what he does. He has to be God. But then he says, remember what was said? 
So he's saying, even the scriptures are saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. He has to be the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And so we see yet again, the scriptures themselves are declaring, this is the Messiah, this is the coming King. Let's look back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is the verse that Matthew quotes in verse 5 of 21. I just wanted us to see it in the Old Testament context. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophecy says rejoice greatly. That seems to be what the crowd does, to rejoice greatly. Go back over to our text in, in, in Matthew. Well, you see there, Zechariah says, when your king comes... When the ruler comes, he'll be riding on a colt. On Wednesday night, we're, we're studying through books of the books of the Bible one at a time, kind of briefly overviewing or looking at a passage of Scripture. And we looked at the book of Micah this past Wednesday night. And we looked at a prophetic word of the Messiah in the book of Micah that says, he's going to be born, the ruler of Israel that's coming to you is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then we looked over in Luke chapter 2 to see that Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be registered. So the, the entire empire, God in his sovereignty orchestrates it such that a decree goes out from Caesar, who is an unbeliever, and the whole world shuffles about to get people back to their hometown so that at, right at the time that Mary is getting ready to deliver Jesus, they find themselves where? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. God speaks and, and history unfolds according to his divine directive. God promises and keeps his promises. And it's never any clearer that God is sovereignly in control and unfolding his plan of salvation than when we look to Jesus. And hear the words of prophecy and see them fulfilled in Jesus. And see the might and the power and the glory of Christ. And hear his words of truth and insight. The words and actions of Jesus prove that he is the Savior. And the scriptures testify that Jesus is the Savior. So now it comes down to us. Now it comes down to you and me. Will we see Jesus Will we see Jesus as he is? Will we hear the word of God and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior? But in this prophecy, in this Jesus directing his disciples to go retrieve this colt, and in this prophetic word from Zechariah being prophesied, and then in Christ riding into town on this colt, the third item to note is really the colt itself. It was God's plan all along that his son, the savior of the world, the king of glory, the son of God, 
the king of kings would enter Jerusalem on a colt. He didn't blaze into Jerusalem riding a a mighty white stallion, a, a wartime steed. That will come in his second coming. He wasn't arriving into Jerusalem to to conquer the the armies and and kingdoms of men. That will come in his second coming. He didn't arrive with a, a show of might and power. That will come with his second coming. He rode into town on a lowly, humble beast of burden. So this great, awesome, sovereign king that Matthew has extensively went to great lengths to prove to us this is God. Look at all the scripture that he fulfilled. Look, listen to what he says. Watch what he does. He opens blinded eyes. This is God. The same writer that went to this great detail to show us that this is God also shows us when he rides in a town on a colt that yes, he is great and yes, he is meek and mild. Yes, he is all-powerful, he can open blinded eyes, but yes, he is gentle and lowly. Yes, he is exalted. He is the Son of God. And here he is on a colt. You see, he wasn't there to tear down Rome. He was there to tear down sin. He wasn't coming to challenge Pilate. He was coming to defeat Satan. He wasn't coming to save by slaughtering the enemy. He was coming to save by sacrificing his life. The prophecy of the cult, the point about the cult, why it was so important to mention hundreds of years before, and why it was so important for Matthew to say, see, that's what happened was to visualize that this coming king of Zechariah 9 is none other than the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This ruler of Israel, this one who's going to deliver you, is going to deliver you by his death. He's going to deliver you in the greatest way possible. He's going to set you free from your transgressions, not your oppressors. Your transgressions. Oppressors come and go. Transgressions have to be paid for eternally. He's not bringing a temporary salvation in an earthly kingdom. He's bringing an eternal salvation for an everlasting kingdom. In other words, Matthew wants us to know that's the triumphal part of the entry. This is Christ, the Savior, the Lord of Lords, the meek and mild and gentle Savior. So we see the prophecy of the cult. Now we see the problem with the crowds. The problem with the crowds. Well, the problem wasn't their actions, was it? I mean, their actions in verse 8, their actions were right. 
Now, last, last week, we, we looked at the crowds and we said their actions were wrong. The crowds last week, remember at the end of chapter 20, they were trying to tell the two blind men to be quiet. Shh! They were trying to shush their faith. So we were saying the crowds were wrong last week, but here their actions are entirely appropriate. They're spreading their cloaks on the road for the colt to walk upon respect and onwards they they are they are indicating tremendous respect and honor in other words they're saying i would rather my cloak be trampled upon than for even the feet of this colt that this man rides on to get any dirt or any dust anywhere on him even on the beast that he's riding on with cloaks and branches, signifying the greatness of this one who is entering into town. I think I said this a few weeks ago. In in our language, they were essentially rolling out the red carpet for Christ. Now, there's a history of this for them. In in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse, verse 13, when Jehu is anointed king of Israel... Kind of the same thing happens. The Bible says that every man, when Jehu is, a, is anointed to be king of Israel, every man around him took off their garment and, and, and put it on the steps so that, so that his feet would not touch the ground. And they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is king, Jehu is king. And so there's great history to this event. There's, there's kind of a tradition. There's a, there's a history behind what's happening so that everybody around understands what, what's being signified by this. So it's not every person and every day that this happens. It's not like every other Saturday the crowds get together and say, hey, let's throw our cloaks down. But this happens on, on very few occasions that, that signify that we believe this person is our king. We believe this person is going to deliver us. We believe this person is the ruler over us. And we celebrate it because we want it to be so. So there's great history and significance to this kind of welcome that Jesus receives. So the, the problem's not with their actions. Their, their actions are right. And the problem's not with their words. Their words are true. In verse 8, we see their actions. In verse 9, we see their words. Every single thing they declared about Jesus was absolutely true. They cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. Now, that's exactly what Christ is coming to do. He's coming to save That's exactly who he is, the Savior. That's exactly the cry to ring out to Christ, Hosanna, save us, save us. Because only he can truly save us. And they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Remember, we learned last week, this is exactly what the the blind men attributed to Christ. When they heard Jesus was passing by, they started calling him son of David. In other words, they, they, they were attributing this title to Jesus. They, they were declaring that he is the promised Messiah. He is the, 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 the promise of the covenant with David, that there's going, David's going to have a son who's going to sit on the throne and rule forever and have a kingdom that will never end. So they're saying, this is him. This is that promised son of David. This is the Messiah. Hosanna, save us, rule over us, deliver us. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are here to deliver the people of God. 
I thought it interesting that the crowds are saying this now. Could it possibly be that the crowds are now convinced that Jesus is the son of David due to the testimony of the two blind men? Remember that last week? The blind men were calling to Jesus. They were calling him son of David. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed that he could open their eyes. They had no doubt in their mind. And lo and behold... We found out last week, we read last week, he actually did open their eyes, so he actually is the Messiah. So the crowds witnessed this. And that happened because the blind men would not allow the crowds to silence them. So more than likely some in this crowd were in that crowd and And maybe having witnessed this extraordinary miracle, the crowd becomes convinced as well. Hey, this is the son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. He's here to deliver us. He's he's here to save us. Hosanna. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they are acknowledging without in this man, Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God is working here. God is here. God is present. And even more so, they cry, Hosanna in the highest, meaning they believe that this is coming from heaven. Hosanna in the highest. Save us in the highest. So they believe God is at work. They believe God is here. They believe God has come to save them. So their words of adulation could not ring any truer. This is precisely who Jesus is. This is precisely why he has come. Their actions were right. Their words were true. The problem, the problem with the crowds is their intention and their motivation behind their words and actions. The problem is the heart. Not the outward actions, not the words that are spoken, but the heart behind the actions and the words. Their reason for saying these things and their reason for doing these things was misguided, misled, Wrong, wrong intended, wrongly intended. Now, we don't find out about this till later. If this is the first time you've read the gospel of Matthew or any gospel, you're reading through chapter 21 and you don't see any issues until later in the narrative of this week of passion. We don't see this yet, but Jesus knows exactly what's taking place as he's riding into Jerusalem. Matthew, now that he's writing this gospel now, he knows exactly what's going to take place. So he's not placing emphasis on the crowd. He's placing emphasis on the cult. They are entirely aware. Jesus rides into town. This is a Sunday, by the way. This is the first day of the week of the Passion of Christ. He's riding into Jerusalem There's great fanfare. Next Sunday, he'll rise from the dead. One week from today in our text, Jesus rises from the dead. Now, that's a stark difference, isn't it? Riding into town and rising from the dead. 
So in between those two Sundays, many people in this crowd who are shouting, Hosanna, save us, deliver us, rule over us, will be shouting, crucify him, kill him, get rid of him. We detest him. Slaughter him. In less than a week, this is shattering. Breathtakingly turnabout. You see, they thought Jesus was there to deliver them from Rome, to conquer their political enemy. They had no idea he was there to conquer their greatest enemy. And that kind of takes us back to the story of Jehu. Because after they lay down their garments for Jehu, and after they blow the trumpet, and after they proclaim him king of Israel, king of Israel, he goes and assassinates and slaughters everybody that was his enemy. And that's what they're waiting on Jesus to do. Ride into town, be proclaimed king, and slaughter Rome. But when he didn't conquer Rome, when he was arrested by Rome and shows up beaten and bloodied on the steps, this is not the Jesus I bought into four days ago. Crucify him. That's how that happened. So when Jesus turns out not to be the Jesus they want him to be, they turn against him. In fact, maybe that's why they made such a big show. Were they trying to compensate for the cult? I don't know. We know this, though, don't we? Crowds are fickle. Crowds are swayed. Crowds yield to public opinion. Crowds will redefine what is true. Sunday, Jesus is king. Friday, Jesus is a criminal. That's why, listen church, listen very carefully. This is the main takeaway from this text for us, main point of application. This is why we don't follow the crowds in our faith. We follow the scripture. We follow the absolute, eternal, propositional truths of Scripture. Jesus is Messiah. We don't waver. The gospel is the only means of salvation. We don't waver. They, the, God, our God is triune and eternal and holy. We do not waver. The Scriptures are true. We do not waver. We don't flow with the crowd. We follow the Scripture. That's why this is a not-so-triumphant, triumphal entry. All of the adulation rings very, very, very hollow. Very shallow. Even though it's true. 
So concluding, there's a stunning, vivid lesson here for us, isn't there? We can do the right thing, like come to church. We can say what is true, like confess, yes, Jesus is the Lord. But if our heart does not believe, if in our heart we have not embraced and surrendered and given our lives, if in our heart we do not believe, our actions and our words have little meaning. They ring hollow. They ring shallow. So what is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to us? Is he nothing more than fire insurance? Is he nothing more than just a ticket to heaven? Have we said the right words like saying a sinner's prayer, repeating somebody that's saying something to us? Have we gone through the right motions like being baptized? Have we done all that? Have we done all the right things but for the wrong reasons? Because there's a kind of Jesus that we want, a kind of Jesus that will get us to heaven but leave me alone while I'm here on the earth. A kind of Jesus that will take care of my soul but leave my life alone. Is there a kind of Jesus that we want and when it turns out not to be that Jesus, we don't want him? Do we believe in our heart that Jesus is our only hope of eternal life and therefore we've given our life to him? Have we been swayed by the crowds? The crowds will say one thing Sunday and another thing Friday. Have we been swayed by the crowds in our faith, in our beliefs, in our doctrine, in our life, in our practices? Have we been swayed by the crowds or have we surrendered to Christ? Are we banking our eternity on a decision Or are we trusting our eternity to Christ? Have we laid it all on Christ? Because it's in Christ and in Christ alone that we are triumphant. And Paul says more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful picture of Christ riding into Jerusalem, knowing what lies ahead, knowing why he's there, not being, not being swayed at all by the, the, the very shallow adulation of the crowds, but very purposeful coming to Jerusalem to lay down his life to be our Savior to rescue us from our own sin. Father, we pray that Christ might be lifted up in our words and in our hearts today. May we see him as the glorious Son of God, mighty in power, yet meek to save the lowliest, to become the lowliest of all, to save the lowliest of all. Thank you for, being a, for us being able to see Christ and meditate and think about and make some applications about these verses, Father. But it's just another Sunday unless we're changed. Unless by the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God, we are changed by what we have seen. 
So change us, Lord. Some of us need Christ. We truly need Christ. Not the Jesus we wanted him to be, the Jesus he is. We need Christ today. Would you draw us to yourself in glorious salvation that we would repent and we would believe and we would truly embrace Christ as our Lord of all. Help us who are in the faith to be rooted and grounded in the faith. To not be swayed by the crowds, to not be fickle like the crowds, but to be deep in our affections and strong in our faith and anchored in Christ. Do a work in us, Lord, today. Change us into your likeness. You be glorified in all things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.